I'm going to start our reflection on this with, um, with sort of half summary of what's already happened and half quiz. It's, a, it's not a big quiz, it's a single question. But here's the thing, I'm going to list a few things that have happened so far in the first few chapters of Matthew, and I want you to think about what one thing all of them have in common. You'll need a little bit of Bible knowledge for this, so it's, it's okay if that leaves you out, you'll learn something today. Um, but I'm going to list a few things that have happened so far in Matthew. Think about what one thing, also in the Bible, they all have in common. So, Matthew chapters 1 to 4, including today's passage, King Herod orders the murder of Israelite babies in the region of Bethlehem and Jesus escapes. Mary, Joseph, uh, th- that's in chapter 2, Mary, Joseph and Jesus uh, they, uh, they escape by heading to Egypt um, and then uh, God calls them out of Egypt again. And then in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness. What one thing in the Bible do all of these things have in common remind you of? Does anyone want to have a stab? Oh, Jesus, yes, Jesus is there. That's right, that's a really good one. Nice and easy, yep. Always the right answer. Can anyone think of something else that holds all these together? Sorry? David, maybe? Satan, yes, sorry, Satan's in there, yes. Ah, what was that? Moses, that's right. Moses and the Exodus. Okay, so there's a thematic sort of link here. All right, so yes, um, Jesus is right, he's there. Satan is right, he's there. Uh, but there's this other great event in Scripture that, uh, that this uh, runs parallel to. So Moses and the Exodus, there is the wide-scale murder of all the Israelite boys as they're born in Egypt. It was, it was uh, Pharaoh's plan for uh, weakening uh, the nation. And then uh, God brings them out of Egypt uh, he does it miraculously, uh, and uh, all of the Israelites through, uh, through miracles and plagues. Uh, and then the Israelites wind up spending 40, not days, but years in the wilderness, uh, being tested uh, and, and barely surviving, if only, uh, only because God has helped them. If the comparison wasn't obvious to you, uh, that's okay. But if we lay it out like this, side by side, and if you have sort of half that knowledge of the Old Testament, then it is actually, it's a reasonably obvious comparison. And what might be less obvious to us was certainly very obvious to Matthew's first audience uh, that he wrote this to. People who understood the scriptures, were very well trained and schooled in them and grew up with them. Uh, And Matthew has a point to make in drawing these comparisons. And the point is this, so it's not just, you know, clever writing or, you know, whatever. The point that he's making is this, that in Christ, God is repeating his greatest ever rescue. God is repeating his greatest ever rescue in Christ. In fact, he's going one up on his historically greatest ever rescue, because that's the thing of the Exodus. It is the greatest ever rescue to date. Uh, We preach... Uh, In this century uh, and in this church, we preach Christ crucified because in his death, Jesus saves us. He saves us from sin and he saves us from death. So we preach Christ crucified and every week, whether we do communion or not, we are going to reflect at some level on Jesus' death for us, his greatest rescue. But before Christ, 
Uh, the Israelite people, they too had an event that they always looked back on, maybe even every week, but certainly religiously and diligently that they recalled to mind God's greatest ever rescue. And for them, it was the Exodus. It was God's grand rescue of his people and the making of the nation when he saved them uh, out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness into the promised land. Uh, the Exodus took place in the second book of the Bible. It's called Exodus. Um, it's a Greek word that means exit. Uh, that's what it means. Uh, and the rest of the Old Testament never stops talking about it. It happens in book number two, and every other book refers back to it in some way. And for the Christian community, the church that sprang up then after Jesus, the Exodus gets almost forgotten in a way, or at least it gets totally reframed. So the Exodus is no longer the saving event. The Exodus is just another prophetic precursor to the saving event that would happen in Christ. When not just one nation, but in Christ all nations would be saved from their own sin and from God's wrath. I'm not making this up. I'm not stretching the themes too far. This is Matthew's explicit point in the opening chapters of his gospel. You know the great uh, rescue in the time of the Exodus, God is going one up on that right now with Jesus. Let me point this out by highlighting uh, just one line of this, the out of Egypt side of it. Matthew says in chapter 2 that... Jesus and his family were brought up out of Egypt and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Yes, Matthew establishes early on that Jesus is God's son and so God is calling Jesus out of Egypt, Jesus his son, out of Egypt. Jesus is God's son. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, it says uh, that he was approved by God on the occasion of his baptism. God said from the heavens, this is my son. But this is a quote in Matthew, a quote uh, from an Old Testament book, a prophet uh, named, uh, what was it, Hosea. Uh, This is a quote from an Old Testament prophet. And let's look at who God's son is in its original context. So in Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So throughout the Old Testament, the Son of God is Israel. So just as we begin the Lord's Prayer with our Father, saying that God is our Father and we are his children, the Jews were taught to see themselves as God's children and to see God as their own Father, the Father of their nation. And so what Matthew is doing here teaches us that to say that Jesus is God's Son means two different things. To say that Jesus is God's Son means that he is God's Son by descent. God is his Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God's Son, literally God's Son. But Matthew is also saying that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. In that everything that Israel was meant to do but failed to do, Jesus has come to fulfill these things. While Israel had been a wayward son, read your Old Testament, 
Jesus would be the true son who would bring honour to his father and do all that he was instructed to do. And all of this comes to bear today in today's passage about Jesus' 40 days of testing and fasting in the wilderness. Why did Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days? Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days because when the nation of Israel, God's son of the Old Testament, did their 40 years wandering the wilderness, they failed time and again to continue in faith. And so the question hanging over Jesus is, could Jesus, God's true son, who has come up out of Egypt, could he pass the test, if only for 40 days? And if Jesus cannot pass this test, it's all over and we need to start looking somewhere else again for help. Jesus can't save us uh, because he can't even do in in a snapshot what the Israelites were asked to do for 40 years. Now, we don't know everything that Jesus suffered for those 40 days, but we're given three examples. And the same ones get repeated in the Gospel of Luke as well. Um, First of all, the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Uh, But Jesus resists, saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but uh, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil then transports Jesus to the highest point in the temple of Jerusalem and he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Surely your father will send your angels, his angels to save you. But Jesus resists saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, the devil shows Jesus a vision of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he says, if you worship me, I will give you all this. And Jesus resists again, saying simply, you shall worship only God. And it says then that at last the devil leaves Jesus. And we're going to look at each one of those uh, temptations in turn, just quickly. But let me first make an important observation about all of them altogether. Okay, we'll look at them all in, uh, individually in a moment, but first all of them together. I've said so far... Uh, that Matthew's making the point that Jesus' salvation is being compared to the exodus from Egypt. And this is a very Jewish-centric concern, right? Uh, And so it's not exactly your concern or mine in the same way. Uh, Because core to the Jews, core to their national and religious identity, was that God had delivered them from slavery in grand style. But to you and me, the exodus isn't very interesting or not as interesting. It's not as personally interesting. It doesn't feel particularly uh, anywhere near as important in the same way to people from other nations. The average Queenslander today isn't thinking back on the exodus regularly as as the thing that teaches them about God's goodness or salvation. So is Jesus a hope only for the Jews? You know, can we really only understand Jesus and what he's done for us if we first, you know, first have to understand in this deep sense what it all meant for the Jews? Now, we can grow a lot and learn a lot by understanding the context and what it meant for the first people. That's a, that is one of the best ways for us to understand this message. But let me say this, Jesus' salvation is not just for the Jewish nation, but for all of humanity, okay? Probably everyone here can accept that. 
And Matthew makes this point really powerfully in Matthew chapter 4. Because not only is Jesus standing in for Israel as God's true son, this is the point he's made so far, Israel is God's son, Jesus is God's son, Jesus is going to do Israel better than Israel could do themselves. Uh, But not only is Jesus standing in for Israel as God's true son, Jesus is standing in, in Matthew chapter 4, for all of mankind. He is standing in as the true human for all humans. And Matthew makes this point really quite clearly as well. So let me tell you about Adam. Adam and Eve were the two first people in the Bible. We learn about them in Genesis chapter 2. Every other person traces their heritage to them. So everyone comes from them. And this is what we inherited from Adam. Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men, all nations, because all sinned. Okay, so we don't, we don't just get called sinners because Adam sinned and now we're just tarred with his brush. But all, on top of that, each of us have sinned as well. We've all got our own uh, dirty records to show for this. And then look at this as well in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so this isn't just a Jewish thing anymore. This isn't just the nation of Israel, but all have sinned. All have succumbed to temptation and have sinned. So we can afford to forget about the Exodus for a minute. Think instead about you and your own problems, your own daily struggle with evil. Uh, Maybe it's external evil, which is evidence enough of sin in the world, but maybe it's your own sin. Uh, and the consequences of your own wrongdoing. Let's remember that death for us is just around the corner, thanks to Adam. Every person on earth faces the same set of trials because of sin and because of our descent from Adam. So if Jesus could stand up to the trial of the Israelites in the wilderness, maybe he can stand up to the test against sin on behalf of all of us. And this is Matthew's point. What are the temptations? Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus is hungry from fasting and in a fashion Satan offers him bread. Adam and Eve are in a garden with fruit everywhere they turn but Satan points out the desirability of the one fruit God said they must not eat. Then the devil tells Jesus that if he is God's son, God wouldn't let him die if he jumps off the tower. And the serpent In Genesis chapter 3, tells Eve, you will not surely die if you eat the fruit, which is against God's word, because God had said she would. And then the devil promises Jesus all the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth. And in Genesis chapter 3, with Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent tells Eve that if she eats the fruit, she and Adam will be like God. He is tempting them with glory and status that only belongs to God and trying to say, but you can have it if you follow me and my word. There's obviously several big differences between Jesus and Adam and Eve. For one, Adam and Eve are surrounded in the garden by every good thing and with just the smallest nudge they cave into temptation. They turn against God and they seek their own glory and they fall 
hard. Well, Jesus, on the other hand, is in the wilderness. He's been starving for 40 days. And the tempter pulls out all the same old tricks that have barely failed him yet. But Jesus withstands the test. Back to Romans, the second verse up there, verse 19. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, but by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And then in Corinthians, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So as I said already, uh, we are going to look at each of the temptations again in turn and really only quickly for each one. But please understand the main point of this passage isn't you must resist temptation like Jesus did. Okay, that's a point in the passage. It's clearly there. It's a powerful point, but it's not the main point. The main point of Matthew 4 is that Jesus resisted temptation where you and I have not. He is the true, perfect Son of God. And by His righteousness, all the rest of God's sons and daughters may be saved. Do you understand? That is the point of this passage. Jesus resisted. He won. And His righteousness is ours. He did it for us. That's not just the main point of this passage, by the way. It's the main point of the Gospel. It's the point of Christianity, of the faith that, uh, that we've come to, that Jesus is the true, perfect Son of God, and by His righteousness you are saved. He has succeeded where we have failed, so our hope is in Christ, not in ourself. Can you see this isn't just a Jewish concern or a hope for the Israelite people? This is an every-person kind of hope from every nation. And that's you too. Ask Jesus, who lived right for you and died for you, in full knowledge of your weakness and failure, ask him to forgive your sins, and you are forgiven. He did it for you. And only then do we really earn the right to start learning some of the more granular and particular lessons about resistance against temptation. Let's look at them, as I promised, one at a time. Jesus in the wilderness. Bread, you will not die. I will give you glory. In verse 3, the tempter came and said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. It feels, doesn't it, like, um, like this would have been a pretty harmless thing? Like, no one's going to get hurt. Jesus is hungry. He has the power. It's not theft. Would it even be wrong? for him to make a bit of bread to eat? Well, a couple of things to help us understand this. First of all, Jesus' fasting in the wilderness was part of uh, a greater mission of his, the one we've already spoken about, to stand in the place of God's fallen people and to succeed where they have failed. And so, uh, so although Jesus was God himself, he submitted to every foible and weakness of humanity. He didn't just appear... He was born. He didn't arrive complete. He was a baby who had to grow in wisdom and knowledge and character. He had no sin to confess, but but he walked through the waters of baptism because that's what's required of us. He didn't have to go through the hardship of the wilderness, not for himself, but he had to for his people. And so he suspended his powers so he could get by on faith alone just as the Israelites were asked to do. 
In some ways, it's the least that he could do. It's only 40 days. It's shorter than 40 years, but it's a very long time. Uh, the other part of the answer to this question, like, would it even be wrong for him to do this? Well, in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, the Bible defines sin like this. It says, whatever is not from faith is sin. Sin is anything you do that you don't do from faith. Well, Jesus would not have been operating in faith in God if he just used his own power to make a meal. And finally, there's a lesson in the words that Jesus quotes from Scripture. Did you hear what he said? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, There's a story in the Gospel of John in chapter 4, a very famous story, where Jesus is walking by a town with his disciples, and it's lunchtime. And so Jesus waits by the well outside the town while his disciples go in uh, to buy food for a meal. And while Jesus is waiting, a wretched woman comes out, someone who's been discarded by society. She comes out alone to fetch water for herself at the well. And Jesus strikes up conversation with her, and in conversation, he offers her hope and God's love, and she believes in him and she receives the Holy Spirit. And then, remember what set all this off, Jesus was hungry. Okay, the disciples have gone to get food. And this is the end of that, or nearly at the end of that story. The disciples return and they've bought some food. And when they go to give it to Jesus, Jesus then says, after all this time has passed, I'm not hungry anymore. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Well, here's a lesson. Food or money or land or other stuff will never fill the hole in your spirit. It would be a pretty unjust and cruel world for God to establish a world that you need a certain amount of wealth to enjoy life's best. Is that the world we live in? I mean, maybe it is just that kind of world. Maybe it is just a cruel, unjust world where you need a certain amount to enjoy life's best and otherwise bad luck. But I don't believe that is the world that God established because all you need to enjoy God's best is to do his will. That is food, that is joy, that is satisfaction. And God's will, by the way, isn't the mysterious nebulous concept that people sometimes mistake it for as if, you know, oh is it God's will for me to do this job or that job or marry this girl or that girl or have three kids or four kids or no kids or whatever, God's will is merely that you obey him, that you hear his word, his straightforward commands and live by them. Do good, love your neighbour, worship God alone. And that is food and anyone can do that. Now, it's harder for some than for others, but it's there. In the same way that greatness in the world that God has made. Greatness is available to everyone because he says all you need to do to be the greatest is to serve and anyone can do that. Anyone can be least. So he didn't set up a world in which you need to be great to be great or you need to be born in privilege to be happy. All you need to do is is to do the will of God and that is true food and drink. And if it's the case that for you the thought of doing God's will is sometimes sickening or off-putting, then maybe what you need is a, is a gut transplant uh, that allows for his food 
to be appetizing and appealing to you. Because your, your body has become too accustomed to the food of the world. Sometimes we need a thorough transformation so that we can truly enjoy uh, and cherish the things he's given us. Sorry, in my true fashion, I'm, I'm spending more time on the first one than the others. The others get quicker. But I had one other thought about this um, that I just wanted to share quickly. Um, this miracle of Jesus, is, he's, he's offered the opportunity to turn bre- uh, stone into bread. Does anyone know what Jesus' first miracle was? Water into wine. Isn't that interesting that Jesus... Uh, forewent? What's the word? Jesus did not take the opportunity when he was starving to make just a bit of dry bread for himself in the desert. But then later on, in the middle of a feast of someone else's wedding, when they run out of wine, that's what Jesus produces. What a, just, what a giving spirit he came with. So anyway, in all of this, resist the temptation towards materialism And resist it with these words. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Number two, you will not die. Uh, Jesus resists it. This is the temptation where the devil says, uh, throw yourself off the high point and surely if you're the son of God, uh, God will rescue you. Uh, Jesus resisted the first temptation by quoting scripture and so the devil tries to entice Jesus with a quote of scripture himself. Uh, Just like the devil had twisted God's words in the garden with Eve, he takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple and he essentially says, well, you you know, you believe God's word, do you? Well, God's word says in Psalm 91, if you want to look it up, more or less, uh, his angels won't let your foot strike against a stone. So why don't you prove that you believe him, if you really believe him, and throw yourself off and surely his angels will come. Jesus said, well, yes, God's word does say that, but it also says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Faith will mean that we sometimes do things that are foolish in the eyes of the world, but that doesn't mean we have to be idiots. So we may sometimes be fools. We may give away good portions of our money or give up Sundays in the middle of our weekends for worship. We sometimes, we we do need to be foolish in the world's eyes, but we're never asked to be just fools. I have a friend who once told me that when he was a young man, he was driving home uh, uh, at night. Uh, He's a Christian fella, and he was feeling particularly convicted and fervent in his faith. And so in a demonstration of his faith, in a moment of madness while driving, he asked God to literally take the wheel. And he closed his eyes and took his hands off the steering wheel. Thankfully, he survived, but there were a few guideposts that didn't. It's not faith to close your eyes while you drive, or to not wear a seatbelt, or to throw yourself off a tower and think, oh, you know. God, God has established a pretty natural world in which, you know, there are natural causes and effects. And we should respect that. That's the world he made. That is faith as well, to, to trust his, the balances. It's not faith to close your eyes while you drive. It's also uh, not faith to not look after yourself. It's also not faith to say, for example, we have no responsibility to care for the environment because God will take care of it for us. He'll come. He'll end things. That's his problem. No, of course. He's given us a role of stewardship to look after ourselves and our environment and our children and our family. And so we do diligence 
And we apply wisdom. Wisdom is not the enemy of faith. Don't test God with being deliberately negligent or foolish. By all means, take risks, but calculate them. Measure the cost. And of course, trust God in the gaps and uncertainties, because there are gaps and uncertainties, and we need to exercise faith. You can count every cost and try and account for every risk, and some terrible things can still happen. We still need faith. You know what's interesting? At the end of this passage, it says in verse... Is it verse 11? When the devil left him, behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Wasn't that the temptation? Throw yourself off the tower and the angels will come and save you. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. That would be to test God. And yet, God in his kindness did send his angels after the fact to rescue Jesus and to care for him. In a similar way to which, um, you know, there is this promise that, um, that if you have faith in God, you will never die. And yet Jesus did die, but he was brought back to life again. And so there's this promise again for all who believe in him that even though you die, you will not die. Um, that there, there is life eternal, even though we pass through death on the way. Finally, the, dev- the devil promised Jesus the glory of the kingdoms if Jesus would worship him. Well, this is the classic temptation of the shortcut. We're always looking for shortcuts or hacks uh, to wealth or happiness, but shortcuts are almost never the way. What the devil is promising is a shortcut to Jesus because all the kingdoms and all the glories of those kingdoms do belong to Jesus as a promise as God's son because he is God's son. This is Jesus' inheritance, not his in those three years of his ministry in the dust uh, of earth, but this is his inheritance, the promise to him. But he had to suffer to receive it, and he had to endure the cross and death. But he doesn't take the shortcut. He dismisses it with a wave. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, this particular temptation, in exactly the same fashion that it happened to Jesus, probably won't come to you, where the devil says, worship me, you know, in person, to you. You would either, I reckon for that to happen, you would either have to get really involved in some really seriously messed up stuff for the devil to come personally to you, or be so great and holy to be almost on a plane with Jesus for the devil to come personally to you and say, look at me, worship me, okay? Most of us are going to fall somewhere in that broad middle. But there are plenty of more immediate temptations than the devil of devil himself there are many uh, other possible sidetracks from worshiping god things uh, that might seem good or clo- or much closer so for example uh, there are other people and personalities that can that can draw us away and to them uh, and sometimes uh, sometimes they're asking for it and sometimes we just give them our devotion certain politicians or celebrities or podcasters can just can draw us in to their web and their and their wisdom religious leaders of any stripe can do that and like I say sometimes it's the leader who's who's laying the trap and sometimes it's just us in our waywardness going oh great I'll follow this one oh I'll do this one next there's another immediate temptation yourself to take glory for yourself instead of giving worship and glory and honor to God 
Remember I said at the start, that all of this is best understood uh, not, uh, not as... Oh, sorry. I had one other thing. This. <laughs> Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus submitted to God. He resisted the devil. In Matthew 4 verse 11, the devil left him. There are lessons in here for us about resisting the devil, about withstanding temptation. But please do remember uh, that this really is about much more than that. It's about receiving Christ and what he has done for us. Uh, As if to remind us that this, what Jesus went through, uh, was more than just his own personal battle against temptation. Every quote that Jesus uses from Scripture, all three of them are from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, which is Moses' speech to the Israelites who have failed. Um, and so uh, this is, continues to be grounded in this story of the Exodus and what Jesus has done uh, on behalf of Israel, God's son, as himself, God's true and perfect son. And then, of course, uh, it's not just for Israel. It's for all nations, that Jesus is the representative of all people and all mankind Uh, giving his perfect life for ours. We're going to close with uh, the song, Yet Not I. Uh, One of the verses says, uh, The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Saviour, he will stay. I labour on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, his power is displayed. And then in the chorus, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. Uh, Let's pray and then we'll sing. God, we thank you for uh, the gift of your holy and perfect son, Jesus. Uh, We thank you for his strength to withstand temptation. We thank you uh, and praise you uh, for his uh, grace and generosity of spirit that he lowered himself and submitted to this temptation uh, and to all the trials uh, so that he could um, do for us what we could never have done for ourselves. God, help us to uh, live with joy and hope, uh, knowing that the battle has been won, uh, and our salvation is secured, uh, and help us to live uh, in faith in Christ and in the faith of obedience. Amen.